Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, that you would speak through your word by your spirit, so we would understand the need to defend the faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The BBC is interrupting its normal programming to bring you an important announcement. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It was a momentous occasion. In fact, I had a look at the YouTube clip today of the announcer from the BBC and you could see it was overwhelming for him. And at that particular time, whatever was playing on the TV right then didn't matter. You know, these kinds of important announcements can change history as this one did. And the gravity of their messages can have a lasting impact. Today we're going to be looking at the first of two sermons on the short letter of Jude, only 25 verses in total. And it's actually a letter that was not supposed to be written, at least not like this. The, the writer was planning to write some sort of letter of general encouragement to them. But something had to change his message. Something happened to make him switch to an important announcement. And it's because of this important announcement that this letter remains in our Bible to this day. And it is because this important announcement identifies a serious threat to the faith. And if it remains unchecked, the very core of Christianity is at stake. I wonder what you would say would be the greatest threat facing Christianity. If I was to go around with a microphone and ask you to tell me what it is, what would you think it would be? Maybe you might say it's religious persecution. Perhaps you might say it's the slow and steady wave of secularism. Or perhaps you might say it's the drift away from the teaching of the Bible. Well, as the writer prepared his letter to the church, he interrupted his normal programming to bring about an important announcement about a serious threat to Christianity. And as we gather today to hear this important part of God's word, we are going to hear the Spirit tell us of this threat and how it is that we should respond. Uh, in the first verse, we read the name of the author. It says, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. It's Jude, the brother of James. James who? Well, it's the James. The James who was the brother of Jesus, which means Jude is the brother of James, who's the brother of Jesus. So Jude was the brother of Jesus. How about that? Uh, clearly, he wasn't a name dropper, though. But maybe Jude realised that as his role of being a slave of Jesus Christ, uh, that overrode any claim to being in the same earthly family. He was prepared to be the slave to his brother. <laughs> but nonetheless, he's a guy who knew Jesus very, very well. And what's more, this meant that he, like James, was a Jewish Christian. And we'll see lots of evidence of that in the letter that follows. Who was he writing to? He says, 1b, I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. I mean, in other words, he's just saying, I'm writing to Christians wherever. 
But how does he describe us? There are three things he says. Firstly, he says that we are called by God the Father. See it there? Called by God the Father. We who know God the Father, we only do that because he personally called us. It's the highest calling of any person to be called by God the Father to be his child. And if you truly call God your Father, then that's only because he first called you to be his child. And that's amazing. Uh, the second is, it says that God the Father loves you. We must never stop being amazed that the creator of the universe actually loves us. For most people of most other religions, they approach their God in fear and uncertainty. Others can't have any relationship with the God or gods at all. He or it or whatever is just a force. But the one and only true God loves his children. And it is a mind-blowing thought that the creator and sustainer of the universe has a heart of love for humans like you and me. Don't, don't let that for a second just wash away. And thirdly, it says that the God the Father keeps us safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Safe. He protects us. So what does he do? The Father calls us, he loves us, and he keeps us. He calls us, he loves us, and he keeps us. And it's all a gift from him to us. In this short little half a sentence, what do we see? We see that we are saved by receiving God's gift, not by working for it. And that's why it's good news. And then Jude prays that we would actually give, that God would give us more of these things. Verse 2, he says, May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Three things, these three things are what we have received from God. And now he prays that we too would show them to others. So we should be people who are known for our mercy, showing kindness when it's not deserved. We should be mercy people. And we should be people who are known for our peace, that we love to show reconciliation when it seems impossible. And we should be people who are known for our love that we would show self-sacrificial service, even when we're faced with hate. And these three things, mercy, peace and love, they come from God and we should pray for more and more of it. We should be praying with Jude that these three things are part of who we are, that people would think of Jamboree Anglican and say, I know those guys. They are full of mercy and peace and love. How can we possibly get there? It's a supernatural thing. We need to pray for it. Which of those do you find the hardest? Which do you find hardest? Is it easy to show mercy? What about peace, reconciliation with others? What about love for those who hate you? In a way, they're all hard, aren't they? We need to pray that the Father would give us more and more of it. Well, next Jude tells us about his interruption to normal programming. He says in verse 3, Dear friends, I had been eagerly to, planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else. Can you see it there? 
Jude's been planning to write a letter about the salvation we share, about the, the Christian faith. I don't know, was it going to be something like the letter to the Romans? Was it going to be a simple little punchy thing that uh, you could hand out to a friend when they say, how do I follow Jesus? Ah, oh, here you go. Now, is that the kind of thing that he had in mind to write? Maybe. But something has changed. Something has happened so that he's no longer going to do that. Because he says, but now I find I must write about something else. He's compelled, he's driven, he's stirred up to change his topic. For he writes, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Their new urgent message is defend the faith. You need to defend the faith. Just like a country that is under attack from an army. When that happens, the nation and all the soldiers put on armour and they stand firm against the military invasion. He, Jude says that is what is happening to the church. And it's what the church needs to, to prepare for. The church needs to be defended. The faith needs to be defended. We've got to be active in stopping attacks against it. But what does Jude say about this faith? He says that it is a faith that God entrusted for all time to his holy people. Or as it sometimes is called, his saints. It's a faith that God gave to us, that he entrusted to us. It's like when you give something valuable to a friend to look after. Let's say you've got to go into hospital for a short little procedure, but it's going to knock you unconscious Hey, you need to take off your jewellery and give your phone and your wallet and keys to someone you entrust. It's a bit like that, sort of. You entrust them with those possessions knowing that you can't look after them when you're under, local under general anaesthetic. So does God do that when he's asleep? Well, he never sleeps, so it's not a perfect analogy, is it? But the point is that he still entrusts that faith with us. But what else do we note about it? Well, we see that the faith is actually once for all time. And this is something that we disagree with a lot of Christians about. See, we believe what the Bible says here. Surprise, surprise. That the faith is once for all time. It does not change. It does not evolve. It does not become more and more like society. This is really, really important. Because this is one of the key areas that we have biffed with millions of other Christians around the world, mainly in the West, but that's another story. We don't have a faith that changes with the world. When society's values change, we don't think, oh, well, it's time to get a new version of the Bible, to upgrade our version, to change what it says, to be like the world, so that we will fit in with the world. And so when our society comes to the high and lofty idea that it's a good thing for a sick person to choose to die and we'll help them, we as a church should change what we believe so we think that's a really good idea. And when our society thinks it's fine for a man to marry a man, we should change what we think about marriage too. And, and when the society says that anything supernatural is crazy, like angels and heaven and hell because you can't see it under a microscope. Are you crazy or something? Oh, we should change our religion so that it's just about the now. And heaven is just a metaphor. We're not going to do that. 
and yet millions of Christians say we should. Whole churches have been split because of this, and not just abroad. In Australia, in Sydney, these churches are splitting over these sorts of things. We will be under pressure to change what we believe. But because we believe what the Bible says, we won't. But can you see how this is an attack? This is why Jude says, defend the faith. Don't let others attack the true faith that's been given to us, that's been entrusted to us. So the Lord says, look, I'm going in for an operation. Not a great metaphor, but trust me. I'm going for an operation. Here's my iPhone. Here are my keys. Here's my wallet. Look after it. And, and God's getting his tonsils out. Very bad analogy. But someone says, hey, can I just have that phone? Sure, take it. I don't care. Really? We need to entrust it. Like, I will defend this phone till I die because God's going in there for a general anaesthetic. It's a really bad analogy. But do you kind of see what I mean? <laughs> we need to entrust the faith. Like, it is so valuable. I wonder if you can think of some ways in which the Christian faith is under attack. Where do you see the battle lines being drawn? How do you personally stand against those attacks? And what will you personally... I'm not talking about the church or the denomination. What you personally, as you sit here, if you're a follower of Jesus, how will you defend the faith against these attacks? Well, in the midst of all of that, you might wonder just why Jude thought it was a good thing to interrupt his little broadcast here to talk about defending the faith. What he tells us, because he says in the next verse, for a, I say this, defend the faith, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Why is it that they need to defend the faith? It's because ungodly people are in our churches, distorting the message. Christian people, Christian leaders are distorting the truth. Ministers, theological lecturers, bishops and archbishops, people who distort the truth once revealed. And at the heart of their message is this. They say that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Because, you know, we're saved by grace, right? And because you're saved by grace, you can do anything you like, right? That's what they say. So Jesus died for you, took your punishment from God, it guarantees eternal life, and so you can do anything and you'll be forgiven. And so you should do anything. Who cares what the Bible says about how you live or what you do or don't believe? Just as long as you've got that tick, you'll be fine. Now, the problem with this is it's actually a half-truth, isn't it? Because God's grace is that great. <laughs> yeah, right? But the point is that when you understand God's grace, you won't live that way. Now, this verse sprang to mind from Titus 2. For the grace of God, here it is, the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ will be revealed. 
That's what the Christian life looks like. It's about turning from godless living and turning from sinful pleasures. It's not about following the ethics and lifestyle of our increasingly godless society. And you can expect that the world will tell Christians, you need to fit in. But yes, the world will do that. But you don't really expect it from within the pews, do you? You don't kind of expect it from within the church. Because it says here that some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. Like Jesus described it, they'll be wolves in sheep's clothing. They'll appear to be un- they'll sorry, they will appear to be godly. They'll appear to be godly. But really they're ungodly. And we will need to be alert for this internal attack within our own walls. It's very serious and it's very dangerous. These people appear to be followers of Jesus, but they're not. Verse 4b, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The problem is that these leaders have rejected Jesus as Lord. They've rejected him as their Master and their Lord, and the result is, what does it say? They are condemned. They're condemned to hell. They're condemned to eternal punishment. That is what this is saying. All they needed to do was trust in Jesus. Kids do it all the time. Uh, Follow the kids. They know what they're doing. Jesus is king. Yeah. Why do so many people find it hard to do that? That's what these people have done. Within the church, deep down, they'd rejected Jesus as Lord. And I think I just want to pause here very, very briefly and say that if you have not accepted Jesus as Lord... As simple and as powerful as it is, the Bible's telling you that you're condemned to hell. And we don't want you to go there. And so it's a reminder to accept Jesus as Master and Lord, you will be saved. It's really quite simple. But did you notice here, back to the text, that it says that this condemnation was recorded long ago? Uh, We heard before that God called us. And we see that he even wrote down our salvation long ago. And I think this gives us comfort. It gives us comfort to know that God is truly in control of things. My goodness, as you see this world, it just feels like it's spinning off its little axis. But it's not. The Lord is king. He's going to look after everything. It's a doctrine of great comfort and assurance. Well, in many ways... What we've just seen here, that's the key bit in a lot of ways of what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to speed through the rest of it, but it gives you a bit of a background to it all. Because as we look from verse 5 onwards, you might actually feel like it's a bit of deja vu. You might actually think, hang on, isn't this what Jacob preached on a few weeks ago? Well, if you think that, you're kind of close because... 2 Peter sounds, chapter 2, sounds a lot like Jude. Really interesting. So much so that the theological nerds, because this is what we pay them for, they, they sit down and think, okay, well, which one came first? Was, was Jude sitting down and there's 2 Peter and he's like, or was it the other way round? Or maybe if they both got this thing that they've got in front of them and they're thinking, and they're copying off it, maybe. That wouldn't be so bad. That's actually my gut feel, that the third situation, that there's this document around that talks about 
the judgment of God and the need for people to take his judgment seriously. And it's, it's a document that's floating around and, and Peter, well, he mentioned it in his second letter. And Jude, well, he's, he's banging on about this need to defend the truth and so he's sort of the faith and so he's pulled it out as well. That's my gut feel. But the point is in all of this, Jude has incorporated this within his stuff because he wants to warn the believers. That is the point. He wrote to warn the believers. And the other little thing we'll notice in all of this as we come through and race here is that it refers to details about Old Testament events that are not in the Old Testament. To which we go, huh? <laughs> What's happening there? It refers to a couple of books called the Old Testament Apocrypha. Now, they're not the official Bible. They are books that some, like the Catholics, will actually stick them in the Bible with their stuff, but, and others will have them around as being important documents and significant historical things. They're pretty good. They're not the Word of God, though. But it seems that they influence what it is that Jude is writing about here. And the fact that the Jews often looked at the apocryphal books gives us a bit more insight as to who Jude really is, because he was a Jewish Christian. He started off as a Jew and then came to believe in his brother. Well, with all that in mind, let's have a look at verse 5 and race through this stuff. He says, I want to remind you, though you already know of these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. Basically here, even people who were dramatically rescued from Egypt, and what an amazing miracle that was, even they, some of them, were destroyed when they didn't remain faithful to God. They were there at the Exodus and they still fell away. And this reminds us that even if you are a part of the community of faith, even if you come week in, week out to church and hang out with Christians, it doesn't mean that you will end up being saved by God if you don't stay faithful to him. We need to remain faithful to God. So if you think that you can just say, well, I follow Jesus, but live a life that's really just like the rest of the world, then you are personally in danger. Verse 6, another warning. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority that God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Here it's sort of basically saying that that some of God's own angels rejected him, even though they were in his heavenly family. But now they're chained up awaiting judgment. So just, when you can start off as an angel, but if you don't continue, then you'll go to hell. And verse 7, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbouring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Uh, These two towns, very, very famous for sexual perversion and immorality, they give us a glimpse of what's coming to those who reject God. And so if you think you can reject God and go through life and avoid punishment then you're fooling yourself. Because Jude just basically says, well, I've got two words for you, or three actually, Sodom and Gomorrah. But then he goes and he attacks the false teachers in the church. Verse 8, he says, in the same way, these people, those people who claim authority from their dreams, they live immoral lives, they defy authority, and they scoff at supernatural beings. 
Uh, these leaders are clearly not living God's way because they're living immoral lives. And what's more, they don't sit under God's word as their authority. What do they do? These false leaders follow dreams, not God's word. You might have had some very, very vivid dreams, but just because it's really, really vivid and you wake up in the morning and think, oh, doesn't mean you think, well, I'll throw my Bible away and I'll believe my dream. That's a really dodgy way to live. And what's more, these people who live that way, they think that they can mock supernatural beings. This is a little bit confusing, this one, but it kind of still makes sense. Verse 9, it says, But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, an archangel, he did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. And this took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't matter too much. You can ask me a question if you'd like me to tell you more about it as I've done a bit of research. But the point is that the mighty Archangel Michael, he didn't even do what those false teachers, those arrogant leaders do. They are treading on thin ice and they're destined for disaster. And you can see we're picking up the pace. Jude continues, verse 10, he says, But these people, these dreaming ones, they scoff at things they don't understand. Like unthinking animals, tell it like it is, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. They're just like animals, you know, a car drives past, woof, you know. They are the false teachers within the church and they're heading to destruction. Verse 11, what sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. Three examples of three people in the Old Testament who head for disaster. And it's true of these false teachers as well. Basically what Jude's done is he's given us example after example of why these new false teachers are just like the old ones. These new false teachers are headed for personal, spiritual disaster. And this is his warning. And he wants to then turn to the people of God and say, now, when they're with you in your church, watch out. Because they are dangerous. Verse 12a, he says, When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs. That can shipwreck you. It's pretty full on, isn't it? He's basically saying that, you know, when you come together for a fellowship meal to remember the Lord's love, what's that like? Well, it could be the Lord's Supper or it could be kind of what we do after church on a, on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning and we sit around and, and enjoy being together and with God, you know, remembering what God has done for it. Whatever that is, this special fellowship meal, basically saying that when they're there with you, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to have fellowship with false leaders because it's like they're as though they're a reef underneath the surface and you can't see it and your ship goes in and rips the bottom of the boat out it looks fine oh it's a lovely ocean and then before or no well you know what you've got the and there's a you look and the water's coming into the boat and and to drive home the point he adds metaphor after metaphor after metaphor to show the seriousness of these false teachers he says, they're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. Oh, there's a wolf attacking the sheep. Oh, run away. Hmm. 
They're like clouds blowing over the land. Oh, it looks like rain. No, it just looks like clouds. Okay. What a, what a waste of space. Or, or, they're, or they're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and they've been pulled up by the roots. Oh, big trees. Big firewood. You know, they're like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. Like, oh, surf's up. Oh, you don't want to surf out there because you will get hammered. They're like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. You know, it's like when they, they say, oh, make sure you come out tonight because all the stars are going to line up and you can see Jupiter and Saturn and all that stuff. And you see, oh, it's overcast. Huh. That's kind of what these guys are like. They promise much, but they deliver nothing. And in the process, they injure God's people. Jude's really concerned about God's church. And so he interrupts his normal broadcast for this important message. He wants people to know that God's judgment is real and it's coming soon. And when people say that God doesn't judge, don't worry about it, he wants them to know that they are lying. It is a big fat lie. When people say, well, you can do anything you like and God doesn't care, they are lying to you and you will go with them to hell. And so he then goes on to quote from what seems to be a saying that isn't recorded in the Bible. But he says, verse 14 and 15, he says, Enoch, who lived in the 7th century, 7th generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He'll convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The point is judgment is coming. If someone says judgment is not coming, they are lying. But you've got to make a choice. You might say, well, I don't want to believe that. Well... Have a go. Wait and see. I mean, one day we'll find out. Judgment is coming, make no mistake. Morality is not a preference. Ethics cannot be subjective. Truth is not relative. And this will be proven when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That's why Jude made it so important. It was so important to him that he, he made this change to his letter. I've got to let these people know this right now. And in the final verse that we're looking at tonight, he gives us a glimpse at the behaviour of these false teachers. He says, These people are like grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. Deep down, these false teachers just live for themselves. They live to satisfy their desires and they do it loudly and they do it proudly and manipulate others along the way. They are, they are very, very dangerous. And so Jude says, my dear friends, watch out, take care, be careful. That's why he interrupted normal programming to send this important message. And he did it because it's a serious risk to the church and has the potential to lead people to hell. And there's nothing more disastrous than that.
So as I wrap up, we might just stop and think how this might affect us here at Jamboree Anglican. Well, many of the blatant and brutal attacks by church leaders happen outside our church and outside our diocese. And we are very, very thankful for that. But other parts of Australia and the world have not been so blessed. I'll give you one example. In 2006, it's a while ago, but it made a big wave. In 2006, the Episcopal Church in the United States elected a woman as their most senior archbishop. And this woman does not believe that homosexual behaviour is a sin and she does not consider Jesus to be the only way to the Father. And that mainstream Anglican church, the Episcopal Church, continues to reject the clear word of God and continues to lead its people away from the truth. And those who have followed her follow in her footsteps. We praise God for the commitment of our own Anglican Diocese of Sydney to the, chain, the unchanging word of God. The unchanging word of God is what we are committed to. And we have a partnership with GAFCON that provides assistance and support to people and congregations that are feeling the impact of liberalism. But what about us within our church? Is there anything for us? I think there is. We are people who know and love God's grace, don't we? We love the grace of God. And we love being saved by grace through faith and not by works. And because we love God's grace so much, we can be very tempted to think that our sins don't matter as much as they do. We can be tempted, in fact, to ignore our sins. We can think that Jesus paid for our sins and so we can just sin Say sorry. Sin, say sorry. Sin, say sorry. <laughs> and in a way, that is true, isn't it? <laughs> but if we really believe that God just doesn't care for our sins, then maybe we don't understand what grace is really like. And maybe that's because we've stopped listening to the word of God. And maybe that will lead us to be people who are just like the false teachers. And if that's you or me, then we are in the church here. And I tell you this warning, knowing with confidence that I believe that God, by his spirit and the power of his word, will defend us from that. But nonetheless, we need to be vigilant in pursuing holiness. We have confidence in God's power to save. And we are people who have been called by God the Father who loves us and keeps us safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And we are people who pray that God would give us more and more mercy, peace and love. And so as we hear these warnings, we can have confidence that he will keep us safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Amen.